morning. Jason Hill, welcome into the gap. Your host, your co-host, Mike's off this week. He's on town traveling. He's got things to attend to. So you're stuck with me for the next hour. And uh, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all thriving and um, continuing to keep your spirits up under the present circumstances. Uh, I know I am. It's very challenging. I still feel a little bit overwhelmed with this remote teaching, uh, teaching from DePaul um, at my home here. I'm not used to it. And the kids are stressed and they're overwhelmed. I find that students are have told me that they're watching more Netflix than they are paying attention to my classes. But, and I know that this, the, the challenges are very overwhelming for them because something that I wanna talk about on the show, many of them are not sure if they're coming back to university at all. Some of them are working as the only working members of their families because both parents have lost their jobs. So one of the things I wanted to start off the show with is looking at what happened this week. Um, the price of oil fell below zero, which was the first time I think in history that has ever happened. Um, we've seen the squabbles between the president and the governors, um, most recently between the governor of Georgia and the president, the governor opening up the state, the president thinking that's too premature. And um, the governor nevertheless opening up nail salons and barbershops and hair salons and, and tattoo stores, tattoo shops. And um, the government, the president going back and forth saying um, he respects what he's doing. He thinks he knows what he's doing, but he thinks it's premature. And then the last thing that as, you know, as an independent conservative um, that really, really got to me was the president playing doctor today, uh, this week, earlier this week, pondering whether or not it might be effective to inject people with disinfectants. Yeah, so let's think about this. The executive branch of the United States government has a team of scientific experts on his panel and is playing doctor with this nation, pondering, speculating on whether or not injecting people with disinfectants direct into the body might help alleviate modify any of the conditions associated with COVID-19. Now, this might annoy a lot of people, but this is why I'm a conservative independent and not a registered Republican, or I didn't pledge my allegiance to any politician. When you're a conservative independent, it gives you the free voice to criticize the left as equally as you criticize the right. And the responsibility, I think, of an intellectual I'm a philosopher by training, is to call out both sides equally when you think some kind of malarkey and nonsense is taking place. And I think what we're seeing right now is America behaving like a failed state. I will just say that. This is my view. America is not a failed state, but it is behaving like a rudderless, leaderless, foundationless, morally bankrupt failed state. And I will tell you who is keeping this country from falling into complete disrepair and complete moral bankruptcy. And it is you, the American people, with the tenacity, the resilience, the perseverance, and the strength, forbearance, and fortitude that you display every day 
either in going out to work, those of you who have to work and must work to keep us going, those of you who are working from home, and those of you who are just sticking things out. Um, but the utter moral bankruptcy of leadership in this country was displayed when I personally sat in utter bewilderment hearing the executive branch of this government uh, speculating on whether or not disinfectants, injectants could serve as an antidote to the virus. And I got a lot of calls from people immediately. Of course, my friends and <clears throat> people who, who follow my work said to me, what, what do you make of this? You know, is this the president being lacking into psychosis? Is this the president in some sense um, going crazy? Is this a, the, the behavior of a narcissistic, egomaniacal man? And I said, no, what I see is utter despair in someone who should behave, be behaving with leadership. But a few weeks ago, let's remember, this is someone who chastised Chuck Schumer for wanting a bailout. Um, I won't bother to read the president's tweets, but tweeted that crying Chuck Schumer, Schumer wants a bailout for companies and for the nation, which we subsequently had to do, a bailout for the rich, ultimately and who called this nothing worse than the flu and called the sniffles, um, who closed down the pandemic team in 2018. So as far as I'm concerned, what we're seeing is something like a caricature of American federalism that's going on in this country. And I wanna talk a little bit about that um, because when human beings turn in some sense to leaders, elected leaders, for some semblance of guidance. Last week, you know, Mike and I were talking about the fact that we don't give up our moral autonomy and we don't give up governorship of our lives completely to leaders because we're adults, children do that. But we do look to our leaders for guidance in areas that we haven't completely relinquished, but that we're not experts in. I'm, I'm not an expert. Most of us are not experts in policymaking or science or economics or so on and so forth. So we allow policymakers, we allow leaders to appoint experts in those fields and to be guided, to have their decisions be guided by experts. That's why we have governments who have economic experts and scientific experts and so on to help them inform and make informed decisions. And when Expertise, for example, has been demolished and ridiculed in this country by our, our government. And when which doctory and a kind of amateurship assumes predominance in leadership, when the expertise of scientists and the expertise of policymakers are derided and ridiculed, and people, leaders take it upon themselves to assume the role of dilettantes. And here, of course, I am speaking about the president, assuming the role of a doctor, a medical doctor, in prescribing something which is quite dangerous to the American people as a possibility, knowing full well that there are people who irrationally will follow that advice. There is no lower place 
in moral cynicism and moral depravity in which we can fall. Fortunately, I think most of the American people will realize the utter shabbiness of such a recommendation. But this also leads me to the question of how we go about appraising and evaluating our moral leaders. And we don't always have to agree on the viewpoints of our moral leaders. But one of the things that I think that every leader should have, especially on the executive branch, is a clear moral vision for the future. And what we're seeing is the executive branch, entire, in fact, this entire government, ill-prepared for not just the pandemic, but for any kind of crisis that awaits us, that has afflicted us. I've been reading the letters and the biographies of Winston Churchill, and I'm very, was very, very impressed with how that man steward England out of a crisis towards a future. And one of the things that is possessed of great leaders is immoral vision. That is a capacity to think beyond the day after tomorrow, right? A capacity to think beyond tomorrow's football game and to project a future beyond the range of the moment, to ideate a future and to start thinking quite clearly about what a nation can do to project itself into a future that can guarantee its longevity, that can guarantee not just longevity, but it's providing leadership to other nations, dominance even. We'll take this up when we get back, among other things. I'm Jason Hill, and this is Into the Gap. Welcome to Into the Gap. As I said, Mike is off for the week, for those of you who are just joining us. And um, I'm running the show by myself for the, I think the second time, or this is the first time, sec first, second time. So uh, in the last segment, I was talking about the absence of moral leadership and the absence of a moral vision and the foolhardiness of the executive branch, more specifically the president, um, irresponsibly suggesting that people inject themselves with disinfectants as a way of coping with COVID-19 or modifying some of the symptoms or even curing it. And I'm going to take the more charitable route and saying that this is not the result of the behavior, the psychotic behavior of an egomaniacal narcissist, but someone who is not prepared for moral leadership and is overcome with utter bewilderment. Um, so what does it mean to be a moral leader? And that's what we were talking about, preparing your nation for longevity, preparing your nation for a future, an indefinite future, a future that your children and your grandchildren and their children can envision, not just a range of the moment, right? No, I think that we're living like concrete bound primitive savages scourging for food and not thinking about how to secure that food for the next harvest, for the next year and the year beyond. Now, there is one country, of course, and Mike and I have talked about this on the show, that is thinking long-term, and that's China. So there are two things I would like to talk about in this segment with you. I wanna talk about the extent to which the bailouts are a form of 
wealth distribution for the rich people, the irresponsible children who run these corporations. And um, I myself am not an advocate of the welfare state and I don't, I know conservatives are not, but this is a horrible display of the welfare state when it comes to rich people, rich corporations, and corporations are treated as persons, when rich persons need the benefit of the welfare state, they are recipients of it. But God forbid that we should talk about funding education when there's a shortage of nurses and PhDs in um, computer engineering and computer technology, uh, we say no. But I wanna get back to this issue. I wanna talk about that in this segment or maybe the next, but I wanna talk about leadership. Who is thinking about leadership? Well, I've been watching China very, very closely. And one thing that China is really capable of doing is projecting a future. They're thinking 150, 200 years from now. They think like a civilization. They don't think like a nation. They think in civilizational terms. And if you study the history of civilizations, whether it's ancient Egypt, uh, the Ying dynasties of China, Imperial Japan, all successful civilizations have maintained their civilizations by thinking long range, never thinking short range. Rome perished when its capacity to think long range began to shrink. And it seems to me that China has been able, and I'm not a fan of the Chinese government at all, but when China is able to amass an ethos among its people that enables them to project a future 150 years from now, there are workers who are working on Chinese projects around the Caribbean, where I'm from, from Latin America, and most particularly in Africa. Those workers will probably never live to see the completion of the annexation, the economic annexation, the imperial colonization of China in Africa in the Caribbean, in Latin America, they will never live to see the fruits of their labor. But they are so committed to the expansionist doctrine of China's growth, China's civilizational growth across the globe. Now, what is it that commits these people to such an expansionist doctrine? When we have a problem in this country, some of us, not all of us, thinking beyond the next video game on our iPhones or thinking beyond the next new iPad Air Pro that's coming out next year or the new iPhone that's coming out. There seems to be something fundamentally wrong about the American civilization. And I call this as, as, a, as a patriotic American, a pro radically pro-American, I think someone who thinks that the American people are non-precedented people, I think there's something very fundamentally wrong about this picture when we cannot project a future beyond tomorrow's football game or next week's football game 
or the latest gadget that's coming out next year, the next flat screen TV. There's something fundamentally wrong about this. And so we talked about this in the past and I wanna bring it up. China has a civilizational expansionist plan, which at present, given our current debt to China, which if they decide to call the loan, I don't know what would happen, but given their expansionist doctrine, given the fact that they have bought up so much of US stocks that when US stockholders were selling off right before the COVID-19 fell, given the fact that they're buying up so much gold, given the fact that they're buying up most of the world's minerals, given the fact that they're buying up water supplies in Australia, given the fact that they control 5G, which controls the maintenance, the construction, and the operation of autonomous vehicle vehicles, that when we build autonomous vehicles in the future, given our inability and non-capability of controlling 5G, we won't be able to run those autonomous vehicles. We'll have to turn to China, given the fact that they have a control of state-of-the-art artificial intelligence and quantum computing, which means that there will be no encrypting allowed, that they will have a monopoly on withholding biomedicine if we don't capitulate to the demands of them when they demand that we share our intelligence or state, in, state intelligence with them. We're in a lot of trouble. They have a 150 to two year plan in the future and we don't have one such plan, right? We can barely think about the next four year cycle or two year cycle, let alone thinking in terms of a 150 year plan. And I think folks, this is what we've got to start thinking about as Americans. What is our plan? How do we intend to maintain our civilization, our magnificent, unprecedented civilization, forge in the crucibles of liberty, freedom, and unassailable individual rights for all persons? Um, we've got to start thinking about that. We've got to start hunking down and stop thinking like concrete bound range of the moment animals foraging for next meal in a jungle and thinking like human beings as we once did about securing a long range future. This is just food for thought because China has done that and China has a plan in store. Who's profiting from this COVID-19 China? Who's buying up all the masks and 95 masks and ventilators. Well, who's a salesperson for all of these equipments, these life-saving equipments? China. Why is the United States the most powerful, economically advanced, allegedly, country in the world, sending a plane, the New England Patriots plane, to China for N95 masks? It's a disgrace. We we've talked about, Mike and I have talked about the absence of manufacturing, the demise of manufacturing uh, jobs and the manufacturing sectors and vectors in this country uh, for a long, long time and how to get that back. So I won't reiterate that, but I think we need to start talking about the supply chain in this country and how to bring jobs back to America and the fact that we might have to pay more money for these goods. Um, 
the other thing that's really bothering me is this kind of crony capitalism that's going on in our country. We all pay taxes. And this might have to spill over to the second segment because I do want to pay some close attention to this and hear what your thoughts are if you want to call in and talk about this. But conservatives talk about limited government and hatred for the welfare state, the nanny state that Sweden and, and Denmark and Norway, the Scandinavian states and the Netherlands to some extent, all adhere to. We scoff at that and we say that's nonsense. But we do have a nanny state and it's called nanny state for rich corporations or rich persons when they're in need. It's called bailouts. Why is it that these corporations are incapable of managing their wealth funds? Well, it's because of greed. It's because of sheer greed. Why is it that we are bailing out corporations that will take that same money and pay their CEO three times, four times the salary of an executive manager, of a line manager. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into economic theory here about how corporate executives behave, but you are an average American or non-average American listening. You know how the bailouts worked in 2008. And you saw how these bailouts failed miserably, the American people. You saw that corporate executives got the money and they still laid off workers. You saw where CEOs got the bailouts and they still got their fat incentive checks. What we need to talk about is why we adhere to crony capitalism and a vision of the welfare state when it's affirmative action for rich people, but not for the average American worker. Hi folks, welcome back to Into the Gap. I'm Jason Hill, your co-host this week, your sole co-host this week, Mike is off for the week. And um, in the last segment we're talking about, we closed with uh, me talking about my annoyance at uh, this issue of welfare state, crony capitalism for the rich. But when we talk about the welfare state of which I'm not an advocate for uh, anyone else, it's met with mockery, derision, and there's something fundamentally wrong about Mitch McConnell, for example, stating that let the states go bankrupt. Why? Why, Mitch? Why let the states go bankrupt? But small businesses are still struggling to get their stimulus checks. Shops, restaurants, hair salons, hardware stores, you name it, are closing because they can't get their stimulus checks. But the rich corporations, the airlines have gotten their packages. And Mitch McConnell says the states can go bankrupt, but these rich corporations 
that have not been able to handle their wealth management effectively because of corporate greed and mismanagement that should have been able to dip into their resource funds and handle properly for the next year or two a crisis such as ours are now asking for bailouts. Why is this the case? Why is welfare, welfareism appropriate and proper when the recipients are the wealthy, the wealthiest, the richest, the most affluent members of our society, but we cast aspersion against those, the poor, the hardworking, who would demand it. Let's think about that for a moment. So you get a check, and, and many people still have not gotten their $1,200 stimulus check. And let's be clear about it, people. This $1,200 stimulus check is not charity. You've earned it. You've paid your taxes, and you've probably paid a lot more taxes. In fact, you've paid more taxes, most of you, than a lot of the CEOs of these rich corporations. I'm a college professor. And I tell you, I make a decent salary, but it is not a lot of money. And I ended up owing $9,000 to the federal government. Now, how is that? I, I'm, I'm still trying to rack my brain. I know a lot of very rich people who don't pay a lot of taxes. And I am a college professor and I ended up owing $9,000 to the federal government. So welfareism is proper and it's appropriate. Wealth distribution is okay. I'm speaking as a independent conservative here. I really pissed off one right now. Welfareism and crony capitalism, the collusion between government and big business is fine. But we cast aspersion and derision when normal ordinary people need government assistance, right? Um, so there's something fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally distorted about the principles that conservatives claim to adhere to. When the nanny state is okay for the crying, irresponsible children who run some of these rich corporations who can't, who through greed stuffing a bunch of candy in their mouths, greed and avaricious greed and mismanagement are running to the federal government for a handout, for handouts. Let's be clear about it. You know, the, the layoffs will continue. The CEOs will continue to add their accounts with bonuses and salaries. And the average American worker will get I can't say the word, but you know what? They'll get, they'll get messed up, right? So I was reading the paper this weekend, keeping up in preparation for the store. And there was a very, very moving story about a woman in Northern California who opened up her, her, her nail salon in defiance. And she said, look, I'm not a protester. I'm not doing this out of protest. She says, I'm pregnant. I've got two kids. My husband lost his job. I'm, I haven't gotten my stimulus check for my small business. I haven't even got my unemployment check. I'm doing this out of desperation. I'm 
already two months behind on my mortgage, my home mortgage, and I'm in risk of losing my store. I'm now buying food on credit cards, with credit cards. And my heart went out to her because she's not someone who's out there saying, open up the economy, open up the economy for the sake of opening up the economy and spreading this pandemic and spreading infections. She said, I'm doing this out of desperation because I will starve if I don't open up my, my nail salon. She's yet to receive her stimulus check. She's yet to receive, she went to her bank about the stimulus package for small businesses. She's just been getting the runaround. But more focus is spent on bailing out these irresponsible multi, multi-billion dollar corporations who have mismanagement their wealth, fund, wealth, wealth funds and are in collusion. Why are the banks getting it? Because they're in the room. They have more lobbyists. You, the average mortgage payer, are not in the room, right? So the fact is that the bailouts should be going in some sense or should have gone to the average mortgage payer, but it's going to the banks. And the so-called, in my view, the so-called, um, well, what they're doing now is they're giving mortgage payers or rent mortgage payers a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're giving them a grace period of three months. Well, that should just be put on the back end of the mortgage. In fact, six months should just be added to the back end of the mortgage, right? Instead of deferring it for three months, just put it on the back end of the mortgage because the banks are already getting a massive bailout. Um, so this crony capitalism, this wealth distribution for the already wealthy, I am not a socialist. I'm a diehard capitalist. I believe in laissez-faire capitalism. I am an ardent advocate of the free market economy, and I'm a radical, rugged individualist who is not an advocate of the welfare system. But I'm a principled, consistent, moral thinker in this regard. And when I see the welfare state, when I see government manipulating, exercising moral hypocrisy here, and using the welfare state or vestiges of the welfare state, for the wealthy, but we can't in this country keep up with China. Most of our PhD students, and I speak as a college professor of 24 years, most of our PhD students in our engineering, in our computer scientific programs, various scientific programs are coming from India and are coming from China. We don't have enough American, white, black, yellow, brown, we don't have enough homegrown American students to fill our PhD programs in computer sciences. We have a radical shortage of nurses. And I heard someone say the other day, some idiot on the radio, that we're laying off nurses in this country because we don't have enough work. That is the, the biggest lie if ever there was one. There is a massive shortage even before COVID-19. You walk into any hospital, and I've been in the hospital, I had a heart attack in September, and who were the nurses who were treating me? Mostly Filipino nurses or nurses from the Caribbean, some from Africa. I could count the number of American nurses that I saw. So when it comes to talking about funding education in this country and achieving parity with, or let's call them 
international competitors. We are so short-sighted. China has an aerospace program and China is dominating in 5G. We're nowhere near there. And we squawk and we squabble and we are disinclined to think about funding our educational programs in that way. But we think nothing about applying the principles of welfareism for or the nanny state to rich corporations when they need it, when they have through sheer recklessness and, and irresponsibility conducted themselves in a way that in a crisis, they don't have the adequate resources which they should have had had they managed their wealth funds properly. Um, a lot of these corporations were making profits. Um, Virgin, Virgin Air Airlines um, was making, was one of the biggest profit makers for many, many, many uh, decades. Richard Branson came out and said, without government help, his airline will go bankrupt. Well, why? Let's ask ourselves why, right? Um, so I think there is something really, really fundamentally wrong. And it leads me to thinking that we have got to rethink again how we think of our country in terms of fundamental principles. There's a way in which we have to, folks, I think, go back to the basics of thinking in terms of fundamental first principles. What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a citizen of the world? There's a lot of talk about globalism. I don't know what that term means. And I, and I take myself as someone who studies concepts very clearly and terms, but this may have to bleed into the final part of the show, but we need to think about what it means to be global players in a world. We're not isolationists. China certainly know that it's not an isolationist player in the world. It is a global player in the world. And this word globalism gets banded around, right? As if it's a dirty thing. I'm not sure exactly what it means because when I ask people to say, what does it mean to be a globalist as opposed to a cosmopolitan or an international global player? What I get is a lot of people twisting themselves into semantic pretzels. All right, I think we have to take a break and we'll be back in the final segment to wrap things up. Don't go anywhere. Jason Hill into the gap. Hi, welcome back. This is Jason Hill into the gap. This is our final segment. And um, I wanted, I know I've been sort of, well, it's just me in my chair. And I've been not, I don't think I've been ranting. I think I've, well, maybe I've been ranting, but I think I've been trying to give some clearly thought out viewpoints on what has, um, been upsetting me and this past few weeks about the absence of leadership and but the but the crisis and more leadership and and why it really has left me not bereft of hope but left me uh, with what the philosopher Aristotle would call righteous indignation. So I wanted to end this you know this last we have fifteen minutes left and I I, I, I a lot of people say to me. Uh, do you still believe in American exceptionalism? And I started off the show by saying America is behaving 
like a failed state, which came actually from an article written in the Atlantic that I read. And I don't, I appreciated the article very, very much. Um, and do I think America is um, an exceptionalist country? And I'm, I'm grappling with that because one thing I have never lost faith in is you, the American people. You know, I wrote this book last year called We Have Overcome, uh, two years ago, We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. And it was really a love letter to the American people, um, pointing out the exceptionist nature of the American people. And America is behaving like a failed state, not because of its people, by and large, but because of its, its leadership, its, its government. As I said, the, what we're seeing is a caricature of American federalism, folks. We're seeing our politicians behave like children, like obstreperous, squawking, um, uh, cantankerous, obstreperous children is the word I use. <clears throat> While China, uh, I'm going to pick on China, sails smoothly into the future. And so I wanted to end the show with something, uh, with an answer to the question, do I still believe in American exceptionalism? And there's a part of me that still wants to hold on to that. Why? Because of you, the American people, who continue to display resilience and tenacity and perseverance and acts of, I won't call it altruism, but sometimes it's altruistic behavior, but absolute beneficence and benevolence in the midst of, of a pandemic. One of the things I love about Americans, speaking as an immigrant, is sometimes I watch today's show and I watch the, these morning shows and I see these doctors and people putting forth these videos on TikTok and, and they seem kind of hokey and these, these dances. And there's a part of me, the serious you know, part of me that really wants to get to my work that, that's saying, oh, this is hokey. And then there's another part of me that lights up like a child because I think <clears throat> this is an American phenomenon. Only in America can you find in the middle of a pandemic where people are suffering and the very people who are suffering are finding ways to find joy in life. And this is the remarkable thing about Americans that they find joy, not just simple things, joy in the simplest things of life, but also in the middle of a crisis they can find joy and they can thrive. I've often said when a tornado swoops in and it wipes out a farmer in Tennessee or the state of Kansas, um, I'm sorry, state of Oklahoma, um, he doesn't commit suicide or she doesn't commit suicide. Stiff up a lip, chin to the wind, start from scratch. One doesn't lapse into cynicism or bitterness or fatalism. Fatalism is an emotion that is alien to the American people. And in that sense, I do think that there's something exceptional still about the American people. And that will get us, if, if, if anything or anyone will get us through this crisis, it will not be our politicians. It will be the American people, their resilience, their incapacity to experience fatalism fate and destiny, this notion that doom and failure is part of our DNA that is completely alien to Americans. And so 
we must never look to these politicians ultimately as our saviors because they're not, because they can't even save themselves because they're so rudderless and they're so morally deficient and bankrupt. And so look to your own moral. I think what I'm doing is I'm looking, and as a, as a teacher of 24 years, one of the things that I've always tried to inculcate in my students is to look to your moral epicenter, your, cent your moral center of gravity for guidance. And you get that from religion, you get that from morality, whether it's secular morality, or you get that from the values that have been passed on through your parents. But we all carry a center of moral gravity within us, a moral epicenter that guides us, that navigates our lives through crises such as we're going through. And so when we turn on, I don't turn on my TV looking to these ridiculous politicians. I don't even think that scientists ultimately, um, as good as they are, the good scientists, and the good politicians are the answers. They are provisional answers to contingent problems. And I say contingent problems because I do think the pandemic will eventually phase out, eventually, I hope. But they're provisional problems. But, but your internal sovereignty and your internal moral epicenter, I think, is what will lead us through this crisis. And so, this is not meant to be some sort of sermon. It's just meant to reiterate what makes me proud to be an American, a naturalized American, <clears throat> is still seeing every day the absence of doom and gloom in the American people. I turn on my TV and instead of seeing resignation and failure and capitulation to what some people think is an inevitable crisis and doom, I see people getting up with their can-do spirit and with a sense of hope and optimism and meeting and affirming life in the midst, in the midst of something that's quite horrible, actually. I, people can downplay this all they want. People can call it a hoax. People are suffering. Lives have been lost. Uh, this is not the flu. This is not the sniffles. Uh, it's something much, much worse. Let's be clear about that. And anyone who discounts that just doesn't have a bleeding heart. And I'm not by nature a very sentimental person, but we cannot discount the, the suffering and the heartbreak and the loss. And that's something I would have liked to have seen in some of our leaders, our political leaders, just a word of compassion. You know, I feel for you, the American people who have lost your loved ones, instead of parroting figures and saying it could have been 2 million or it could have been 3 million, but it's now only 30,000. The kind of callousness and the absence of human compassion. But there are some of us who feel that compassion and there are some of us who actually are in awe of the average American who's jobless, who doesn't know where the future, what the future holds for him or her but still affirms life and still carries on life and who still validates and legitimizes his or her existence by affirming the life that God gave to him or her. And this God-given life that we have, this inviolable sanctity that we carry cannot be wiped out by a pandemic. It can't be wiped out by political leaders. So I would say stay strong. 
and continue to pay attention to that moral epicenter, that moral center of gravity that you carry within you. That is inviolable. It is sacred. It is something that no one can take away from you. And no leader can strengthen it. And no leader can weaken it.